Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 11, Chapter 30 Harris Climbs Mountains for Me An hour's sail brought us to Lucerne again. I judged it best to go to bed and rest several days, for I knew that the man who undertakes to make the tour of Europe on foot must take care of himself. Thinking over my plans as we mapped out, I perceived they did not take in the Furka Pass, the Rhone Glacier, the Finisterre Horn, the Vetterhorn, etc. I immediately examined the guidebook to see if these were important and found they were. In fact, a pedestrian tour of Europe could not be complete without them. Of course, that decided me at once to see them, for I never allow myself to do things by halves or in a slurring, slipshod way. I called my agent and instructed him to go without delay and make a careful examination of these noted places on foot and bring me back a written report of the result for insertion into this book. I instructed him to go to Hospenthal as quickly as possible, make his grand start from there, and to extend his foot expedition as far as Gleisbach Fall and return to me from thence by diligence or mule, and I told him to take the courier with him. He objected to the courier and with some show of reason, since he was about to venture upon new and untrod ground. But I thought he might as well learn how to take care of the courier, now as later. Therefore, I enforced my point. I said that the trouble, delay, and inconvenience in traveling with a courier were balanced by the deep respect which a courier's presence demands. And I must insist that as much style be thrown into my journeys as possible. So the two assumed complete mountaineering costumes and departed. A week later they returned, pretty well used up, and my agent handed me the following. Official report of a visit to the Furka region by H. Harris, agent. About seven o'clock in the morning, perfectly fine weather, we started from Hosmanthal and arrived at the Maison on the Furka in a little under a quarter hours. The want of variety in the scenery from Hospenthal made the Kakaponika wearisome, but let none be discouraged. No one can fail to be completely recompensee for his fatigue when he sees for the first time the monarch of the Oberland, the tremendous Finster Arhorn. A moment before all this was dullness, but a pass further has placed us on the summit of the Furka and exactly in front of us at a hopow of only 15 miles. This magnificent mountain lifts its snow-wreathed precipices into the deep blue sky. The inferior mountains on each side of the pass form a sort of frame for the picture of their dread lord and close in the view so completely that no other prominent feature in the Oberland is visible from this bongabong. Nothing withdraws the attention from the solitary grandeur of the Finsterarhorn and dependent spurs which form the abutments of the central peak. With the addition of some others who are bound for the Grimsel, we formed a large zolage as we descended the steg. We soon left the path and took to the ice, and after wandering among the crevices, Unpu, to admire the wonders of these deep blue caverns and hear the rushing of waters through their subglacial channels, 
We struck out a course toward Lot Croat and crossed the glacier successfully a little above the cave from which the infant Rome takes its first bound from under the grand precipice of ice. Half a mile below this, we began to climb the flowery side of the Mayan wand. One of our party started before the rest, but the Hitza was so great we found him quite exhausted and lying at full length in the shade of a large gaystein. We sat down with him for a time, for all felt the heat exceedingly in climbing up this very steep bulwogly. Then we set out together again, and arrived at last near the dead man's lake, at the foot of the saddle horn. This lonely spot, once used for an extempore burying place, was a sanguinary batu between the French and the Austrians. It is the perfection of desolation. There is nothing in sight to mark the hand of man except the line of weather-beaten, whitened posts set up to indicate the direction of the pass in the Odahawk of winter. Near this point, the footpaths join the wider track, which connects the Grimsel with the head of the Rhone Schwab. This has been carefully constructed and leads with a tortuous course among and over Lapierre down the bank of the gloomy little swash-swash which almost washes against the walls of the Grimsel Hospice. We arrived a little before four o'clock at the end of our day's journey, hot enough to justify the step taken by most of the party of plunging into the crystal water of the snow-fed lake. Next afternoon, we started for a walk up the Unterar Glacier with the intention of, at all events, getting as far as Hooty which is used as a sleeping place by most of those who cross the Strelak Pass at Grindelwald. We got over the tedious collection of stones and debris, which covers the Pied of the Gletcher, and had walked nearly three hours from Grimsel, but just as we were thinking of crossing over to the right, to climb the cliffs at the foot of the hut, the clouds, which had for some time assumed a threatening appearance, suddenly dropped, and a huge mass of them, Driving toward us from the Finster Arhorn, poured down a deluge of hobbalung and hail. Fortunately, we were not far from a very large glacier table. It was a huge rock, balanced on a pedestal of ice, high enough to admit our all creeping under it for a garkarok. A stream of puckety puke had furrowed a course for itself in the ice at its base, we were obliged to stand with one fuss on each side of this and endeavor to keep ourselves chawed by cutting steps in the steep bank of the pedestal so as to get to a higher place for standing on as the Vosser rose rapidly in its trench. A very cold bzzz accompanied the storm and made our position far from pleasant. And presently came a flash of blitzen, apparently in the middle of our little party, with an instantaneous clap of yaki sounded like a large gun fired close to our ears. The effect was startling, but in a few seconds our attention was fixed by the roaring echoes of the thunder against the tremendous mountains which completely surrounded us. This was followed by many more bursts. None of the Welky, however, was so dangerously near, and after waiting a long demi-hour in our icy prison, we sallied out to talk through a hubalong which, though not as heavy as before, was quite enough to give us a thorough soaking before our arrival at the hospice. Grimsel is certainly a wonderful place, situated at the bottom of a sort of huge crater, the sides of which are utterly savage geberge, composed of barren rocks which cannot even support a single pine arbor, 
and afford only scanty food for a herd of Wamlop, which looks as if it must be completely begrobbin in the winter snows. Enormous avalanches fall against it every spring, sometimes covering everything to a depth of 30 or 40 feet. In the spot of walls four feet thick and furnished with outside shutters, the two men who stay here when the voyagers are snugly quartered in their distant homes can tell you that the snow would sometimes shake the house to its foundation. Next morning, the hobble-bagullum still continued bad, but we made up our minds to go on and make the best of it. Half an hour after we started, the reggin thickened unpleasantly, and we attempted to get shelter under projecting rock, but being far too nass already to make standing at our arguable, we pushed on for the hon deck, consoling ourselves with the reflection that come from furious rushing of the river R on our side. We should at all events see the celebrated Vosser fall in grand perfection, nor were we all nopper socket in our expectation. The water was roaring down its leap of 250 feet in the most magnificent frenzy, while the trees which cling to its rocky sides swayed to and fro in the violence of the hurricane which it brought down with it. Even the stream, which falls into the main cascade at right angles, and toutefois forms a beautiful feature in the scenery, was now swollen in a raging torrent. And the violence of this meeting of the waters, about fifty feet below the frail bridge where we stood, was fearfully grand. While we were looking at it, Glecklekwisa, a gleam of sunshine came out, and instantly a beautiful rainbow was formed by the spray, and hung in midair, suspended above that awful gorge. On going into the chalet above the fall, we were informed that a bruica had broken down near Guttenam, and that it would be impossible to proceed for some time. Accordingly, we were kept in our drenched condition for Einstunde, while some voyagers arrived from Merrigan and told us that there had been a trifling accident, Auburn that we could now cross. On arriving at the spot, I was much inclined to suspect that the whole story was a ruse to make us sloke and drink more at the Hondeck Inn, for only a few planks had been carried away, and though there might perhaps have been some difficulty with mules, the gap was certainly not larger than a Mublux might cross with a very slight leap. Near Gutenam, the Hublong happily ceased, and we had to walk ourselves tolerably dry before arriving at Reckenbach, while we enjoyed a good din at the Hotel de Alps. The next morning we walked to Rosenlau, the beau ideal of Swiss scenery where we spent the middle of the day in an excursion to the glacier. This was more beautiful than words can describe, for in the constant progress of the ice, it has changed the form of its extremity and formed a vast cavern as blue as the sky above and rippled like a frozen ocean. A few steps cut in the whoop jamborihu enabled us to walk completely under this and feast our eyes upon one of the loveliest objects in creation. The glacier was all around divided by numberless fissures of the same exquisite color. The finest wood, Erberdurin, was growing in abundance but a few yards from the ice. The inn stands in a Charmont spot close to the Côte de Rivière, which lower down forms the Reichenbach Fall, and embosomed in the richest of pine woods, while the fine form of the Wellhorn looking down upon it completes the enchanting bopple. In the afternoon, we walked over the great shy deck to Grindelwald. Stopped to pay a visit to the upper glacier, by the way. 
We were then taken again by a bad hookalup-glup and arrived at the hotel in Asolka, a state that the landlord's wardrobe was in great request. The clouds by this time seemed to have done their worst, for a lovely day succeeded, which we determined to devote to an ascent to the Fallhorn. We left Grindelwald just as thunderstorm was dying away, and we hoped to find Gutenwetter up above. But the rain, which had nearly ceased, began again, and we were struck by the rapidly increasing Freud as we descended. Two-thirds of the way up were completed when the rain was exchanged for glilic, with which the Bowden was quickly covered, and mist became so thick we could not see one another at more than twenty poo-poo distance, and it became difficult to pick our way over the rough and thickly covered ground. Shivering with cold, we turned into bed with a double allowance of clothes and slept comfortably, while the wind howled autour de la maison. When I awoke, the wall and the window looked equally dark, but in another hour I found I could just see the form of the ladder, so I jumped out of bed and forced it open, though with great difficulty from the frost and quantities of ganillic heaped up against it. A row of huge icicles hung down from the edge of the roof, and anything more wintry than the whole anblick could not be well imagined. But the sudden appearance of the great mountains in front of us was so startling, I felt an inclination to move toward the bed again. The snow which had collected upon La Fortra had increased the finsterness odor und dunkelheit, so that when I looked out I was surprised to find the daylight was considerable, and that the Balragumha would evidently rise before long. Only the brightest of Let Etoil was still shining. The sky was cloudless overhead, though small curling mists lay thousands of feet below us in the valleys, wreathed around the feet of the mountains and adding to the splendor of their lofty summits. We were soon dressed and out of the house, watching the gradual approach of dawn, thoroughly absorbed in the first, near view of the overland giants, which broke upon us unexpectedly after the intense obscurity of the eating before. Song was she come winter horn snowpow, cried someone as the grand summit gleamed with the first rose of dawn, and in a few moments the double crest of the Shrekhorn followed its example. Peak after peak seemed warmed with life, the young Frau blushed even more beautifully than her neighbors, and soon, from the wetter horn in the east to the wild struble in the west, a long row of fires glowed upon mighty altars, truly worthy of the gods. Our sleeping place could hardly be distinct from snow around it, which had fallen to a depth of a flirk during the past evening, and we heartily enjoyed a rough scramble on Boss to the Giesbach Falls, where we soon found a warm climate. At noon the day before Grindelwald, the thermometer could not have stood at more than a hundred degrees far in the sun and in the evening. Judging from icicles formed and the state of the windows, there must have been at least twelve dingbladder of frost, thus giving a change of eighty degrees during a few hours. I said, You have done well, Harris. This report is concise, compact, well expressed. Language is crisp. Descriptions vivid and not needlessly elaborated. Your report goes straight to the point, attends strictly to business, and doesn't fool around. It is in many ways an excellent document, but it has a fault. It is too learned. It is much too learned. What is a dingbladder? Dingbladder is a Fiji word meaning degrees. 
You knew the English of it then. Oh, yeah. What is gnilic? That's an Eskimo term for snow. So you knew the English word for that, too? Why, certainly. What does mobilix stand for? Well, that's Sulu for pedestrian. While the form of the wellhorn looking down upon it completes the enchanting bopple. What is a bopple? Picture, it's Choctaw. And what is a schnop? A valley, that's Choctaw too. And what is a bullwoggly? That's Chinese for hill. Kakaponika? Ascent, Choctaw. But we were overtaken again by bad hogglebumgullop. What does hogglebumgullop mean? It's Chinese for weather. Is hogglebumgullop better than the English word? Is it any more descriptive? No, means the same. And dingbladder and gnilic and bopple and schnop, are they any better than the English words? No, they mean just what the English ones do. Then why use them? Why have you used all this Chinese and Choctaw and Zulu rubbish? Because I didn't know any French, but two or three words. Didn't know any Latin or Greek at all. That is nothing. Why should you want to use those foreign words anyway? They adorn my page. They all do it. Who is all? Everybody. Everybody writes elegantly. Anybody has a right to that wants to. I think you are mistaken. I then proceeded in the following scathing manner. When really learned men write books for other learned men to read, they are justified in using as many learned words as they please. Their audience will understand them. But a man who writes a book for the general public to read is not justified in disfiguring his pages with untranslated foreign expressions. It is an insolence toward the majority of the purchasers. For it is a very frank and impudent way of saying, get the translations made yourself if you want them. This book is not written for the ignorant masses. There are some men who know a foreign language so well and have used it so long in their daily life they seem to discharge whole volleys of it into their English writings unconsciously, and so they omit to translate as much as half the time. This is a great cruelty to nine out of ten of the man's readers. What is the excuse for this? The writer would say he only uses the foreign language where the delicacy of his point cannot be conveyed in English. Very well. Then he writes his best things for the tenth man, and he ought to warn the other nine not to buy the book. However, the excuse he offers is at least an excuse, but there is another set of men who are like you. They know a word here and there of a foreign language or a few beggarly little three-word phrases filched from the back of the dictionary, and these are constantly, continually being peppered into their literature with a pretense of knowing that language. What excuse can they offer? The foreign words and phrases which they use have their exact equivalents in a nobler language, English. Yet they think they adorn their pages when they say Strasse for street and Bodhoff for railway station and so on, flaunting these fluttering rags of poverty in the reader's face and imagining he will be ass enough to take them for a sign of untold riches held in reserve. I will let your learning remain in your report. You have as much right, I suppose, to adorn your page with Zulu and Chinese and Choctaw rubbish as others of your sort have to adorn theirs with insolent odds and ends smooshed from a half-dozen learned languages 
whose A.B. Obs don't even know. When the musing spider steps upon the red-hot shovel, he first exhibits a wild surprise, then shrivels up. Similar was the effect of these blistering words upon the tranquil and unsuspecting agent. I can be dreadfully rough on a person when the mood takes me. Chapter 31 Alp Scaling by Carriage We now prepared for a considerable walk from Lucerne to Interlaken over the Brunig Pass. But at the last moment the weather was so good, I changed my mind and hired a four-horse carriage. It was a huge vehicle, roomy, as easy in its motion as a Planquin, and exceedingly comfortable. We got away pretty early in the morning, after a hot breakfast, and went bowling over a hard, smooth road through the summer loveliness of Switzerland, with near and distant lakes and mountains, before and about us for the entertainment of the eye, and the music of the multitudinous birds to charm the ear. Sometimes there was only the width of the road between the imposing precipices on the right and the clear, cool water on the left, with its shoals of uncatchable fish skimming about through the bars of sun and shadow. And sometimes in the place of the precipices, grassy land stretched away in an apparently endless upward slant, and was dotted everywhere with snug little chalets, the peculiarly captivating cottage of Switzerland. The ordinary chalet turns a broad, honest gable end to the road, and its ample roof hovers over the home in a protecting, caressing way, projecting its sheltering eaves far outward. The quaint windows are filled with little panes and garnished with white muslin curtains and brightened with boxes of blooming flowers. Across the front of the house and up the spreading eaves and along the fanciful railings of the shallow porch are elaborate carvings, reeds, fruits, arabesques, verses from scripture, names, dates, etc. The whole building is made of wood, reddish-brown in tint and a very pleasing color. It generally has vines climbing over it. Set such a house against the fresh green of the hillside and it looks ever so cozy and inviting and picturesque and is decidedly a graceful addition to the landscape. One does not find out what a hold the chalet has taken upon him until he presently comes upon a new house, a house which is aping the town fashions of Germany and France. Prim, hideous, straight-up-and-down thing, plastered all over on the outside and looked like stone, and altogether so stiff and formal and ugly and forbidding, and so out of tune with the gracious landscape, and so deaf and dumb and dead to the poetry of its surroundings, that it suggests an undertaker at a picnic, a corpse at a wedding, or a Puritan in paradise. In the course of the morning, we pass the spot where Pontius Pilate is said to have thrown himself into the lake. Legend says that after the crucifixion, his conscience troubled him, and he fled from Jerusalem and wandered about the earth, weary of life and a prey to tortures of the mind. Eventually, he hid himself away on the heights of Mount Pilatus and dwelt alone among the clouds and crags for years. But rest and peace were still denied him so he finally put an end to his misery by drowning himself. Presently, we passed the place where a man of better odor was born. This was the children's friend, Santa Claus, or St. Nicholas. There are some unaccountable reputations in the world. This saint's is an instance. He has ranked for ages as the peculiar friend of children, yet 
It appears he was not so much of a friend to his own. He had ten of them, and when fifty years old, he left them and sought out as dismal a refuge from the world as possible, and became a hermit in order that he might reflect upon pious themes without being disturbed by the joyous and other noises from the nursery, doubtless. Judging by Pilate and St. Nicholas, there exists no rule for the construction of hermits. They seem made out of all kinds of material. But Pilate attended to the matter of expiating his sin while he was alive, whereas St. Nicholas will probably have to go on climbing down sooty chimneys on Christmas Eve forever and conferring kindness on other people's children to make up for deserting his own. His bones are kept in a church in a village, Sokselm, which we visited, and are naturally held in great reverence. His portrait is common in the farmhouses of the region, but is believed by many to be but an indifferent likeness. During his hermit life, according to legend, he partook of the bread and wine of communion once a month, but all the rest of the month he fasted. A constant marvel with us as we sped along the bases of the steep mountains on this journey was not that avalanches occur, but that they are not occurring all the time. One does not understand why rocks and landslides do not plunge down these declivities daily. A landslip occurred three-quarters of a century ago on the route from Arth to Brunnen, which was a formidable thing. A mass of conglomerate two miles long and a thousand feet broad and a hundred feet thick broke away from a cliff three thousand feet high and hurled itself into the valley below, burying four villages and five hundred people as in a grave. We had such a beautiful day and such endless pictures of limpid lakes and green hills and valleys and majestic mountains and milky cataracts dancing down the steeps and gleaming in the sun that we could not help feeling sweet toward all the world. So we tried to drink all the milk and eat all the grapes and apricots and berries and buy all the bouquets of wildflowers which the little peasant boys and girls offered for sale. But we had to retire from this contract for it was too heavy. At short distances, they were entirely too short. Along the road were groups of neat and comely children, with their wares nicely and temptingly set forth in the grass under the shade of trees, and as soon as we approached, they swarmed into the road, holding out their baskets and milk bottles, and ran beside the carriage barefoot and bareheaded, and importuned us to buy. They seldom desisted early, but continued to run and insist, beside the wagon while they could, and behind it until they lost their breaths. Then they turned and chased a returning carriage back to their trading post again. After several hours of this, without any intermission, it becomes almost annoying. I do not know what we should have done without the returning carriages to draw off the pursuit. However, there were plenty of these loaded with dusty tourists and piled high with luggage. Indeed, from Lucerne to Interlaken, we had the spectacle, among other scenery, of an unbroken procession of fruit peddlers and tourist carriages. Our talk was mostly anticipatory of what we would see down on the sun grade of the Brunig, by and by after we should pass the summit. All our friends in Lucerne had said that to look down upon Merrigan and the rushing blue-gray river R and the broad level green valley and across the mighty alpine precipices that rise straight up into the clouds out of that valley 
and up at the microscopic chalets perched upon the dizzying eaves of those precipices and winking dimly and fitfully through the drifting veil of vapor, and still up and up at the superb Altsbach and the other beautiful cascades that leap from those rugged heights, robed in powdery spray, ruffled with foam, and girdled with rainbows. To look upon these things, they say, was to look upon the last possibility of the sublime and the enchanting. Therefore, as I say, we talk mainly of these coming wonders. If we were conscious of any impatience, it was to get there in favorable season. If we felt any anxiety, it was that the day might remain perfect and enable us to see those marvels at their best. As we approached the Kaiserstuhl, a part of the harness gave way. We were in distress for a moment, but only a moment. It was the fore and aft gear that was broken, the thing that leads aft from the forward part of the horse and is made fast to the thing that pulls the wagon. In America, this would have been a heavy leather strap, but all over the continent it is nothing but a piece of rope the size of your little finger. Clothesline is what it is. Cabs use it, private carriages, freight carts, wagons, all sorts of vehicles have it. In Munich, I afterwards saw it used on a long wagon laden with 54 half-barrels of beer. I had before noticed that the cabs in Heidelberg used it. Not a new rope, but a rope that had been in use since Abraham's time. And I had felt nervous sometimes behind it when the cab was tearing down a hill. But I had long been accustomed to it now, and even become afraid of the leather strap which belonged in its place. Our driver got a fresh piece of clothesline out of his locker and repaired the brake in two minutes. So much for one European fashion. Every country has its own ways. may interest the reader to know how they put horses to on the continent. The man stands up the horses on each side of the thing that projects from the front end of the wagon and then throws the tangled mess of gear forward through a ring and hauls it aft, passes the other thing through the ring, and hauls it aft on the other side of the horse, opposite the first one, after crossing them and bringing the loose end back, and then buckles the other thing underneath the horse, and takes another thing and wraps it around the thing I spoke of before, and puts another thing over each horse's head, with broad flappers to keep the dust out of his eyes, and puts the iron thing in his mouth for him to grit his teeth on, uphill, and brings the other end of these things aft over his back, after buckling another one around under the neck to hold his head up, then it takes the slack of the thing, which I mentioned a while ago, and fetches it aft and makes it fast to the thing that pulls the wagon and hands the other things up to the driver to steer with. I have never buckled up a horse myself, but I do not think we do it that way. We had four very handsome horses, and the driver was very proud of his turnout. He would bowl along on a reasonable trot, on the highway, but when we entered the village, he did it on a furious run, and accompanied it with a frenzy of ceaseless whip-crackings that sounded like volleys of musketry. He tore through the narrow streets and around the sharp curbs like a moving earthquake, showering his volleys as he went, and before him swept a continuous tidal wave of scampering children, ducks, cats, and mothers clasping babies, which they had snatched out of the way of the coming destruction. And as this living wave washed aside along the walls, its elements, being safe, forgot their fears and turned their admiring gaze upon that gallant driver 
till he thundered around the next curve and was lost to sight. He was a very great man to those villagers, with his gaudy clothes and his terrific ways. Whenever he stopped to have his cattle watered and fed with loaves of bread, the villagers stood around admiring him while he swaggered about. Little boys gazed up at his face with humble homage, and the landlord brought out foaming mugs of beer and conversed proudly with him while he drank. Then he mounted his lofty box, swung his explosive whip, and away he went again, like a storm. I had not seen anything like this since I was a boy, and the stage used to flourish the village with the dust flying and the horn tooting. When we reached the base of the Kaiser stool, we took two more horses. We had to toil along with difficulty for an hour and a half or two hours, for the ascent was not very gradual. But when we passed the backbone and approached the station, the driver surpassed all his previous efforts in the way of rush and clatter. He could not have six horses all the time, so he made the most of his chance while he had it. Up to this point, we had been in the heart of the William Tell region. The hero was not forgotten by any means or held in doubtful veneration. His wooden image with his bow drawn above the doors of taverns was a frequent feature of the scenery. About noon we arrived at the foot of the Brunig Pass and made a two-hour stop at the village hotel, another of those clean, pretty, and thoroughly well-kept inns which are such an astonishment to people who are accustomed to hotels of a dismally different pattern in remote country towns. There was a lake here, in the lap of the great mountains. The green slopes that rose toward the lower crags were graced with scattered Swiss cottages nestling among the miniature farms and gardens, and from out of a leafy ambuscade in the upper heights tumbled a brawling cataract. Carriage after carriage laden with tourists and trunks arrived, and the quiet hotel was soon populous. We were early at the table de hot and saw the people all come in. There were twenty-five, perhaps. They were of various nationalities, but we were for once the only Americans. Next to me sat an English bride, and next to her sat her new husband, whom she called Nettie, though he was big enough and stalwart enough to be entitled to his full name. They had a pretty little lover's quarrel over what wine they would have. Nettie was for obeying the guidebook and taking the wine of the country, but the bride said, What, that nasty stuff? It isn't nasty, pet. It's quite good. It is nasty. No, it isn't nasty. It's awful nasty, Nettie, and I shan't drink it. Then the question was, what would she have? She said he knew very well that she never drank anything but champagne. And she added, You know very well Papa always has champagne on his table, and I've always been used to it. Nettie made a playful pretense of being distressed about the expense, and this amused her so much that she nearly exhausted herself with laughter. And this pleased him so much that he repeated his jest a couple of more times, and added new and killing varieties to it. When the bride finally recovered, she gave Nettie a love-box on the arm with her fan, and said with arch severity, "'Well, you have me. Nothing else would do.' so you'll have to make the best of a bad bargain. Do order the champagne. I'm awful dry. With a mock grin which made her laugh again, Nettie ordered the champagne. 
The fact that this young woman had never moistened the selvage edge of her soul with a less plebeian tipple than champagne had a marked and subduing effect on Harris. He believed she belonged to the royal family, but I have my doubts. We heard two or three different languages spoken by people at the table and guessed out the nationalities of most of the guests to our satisfaction. But we failed with an elderly gentleman and his wife and a young girl who sat opposite us and with a gentleman of about 35 who sat three seats beyond Harris. We did not hear any of them speak. Finally, the last-named gentleman left while we were not noticing, but we looked up as he reached the far end of the table. He stopped there for a moment and made his toilet with a pocket comb. So he was a German, or else he had lived in German hotels long enough to catch the fashion. When the elderly couple and the young girl rose to leave, they bowed respectfully to us, so they were Germans too. This national custom is worth six of the other one, for export. After dinner, we talked with several Englishmen, and they inflamed our desire to a hotter degree than ever to see the sights of Merrigan from the heights of the Brunig Pass. They said the view was marvelous, and that one who has seen it once could never forget it. They also spoke of the romantic nature of the road over the pass, and how in one place it had been cut through the flank of the solid rock, in such a way that the mountains overhung the tourist as he passed by. And they furthermore said that the sharp turns on the road and the abruptness of the descent would afford us a thrilling experience, for we should go down in a flying gallop and seem to be spinning around the rings in a whirlwind, like a drop of whiskey descending the spirals of a corkscrew. I got all the information out of these gentlemen that we could need, and then, to make everything complete, I asked them if a body could get hold of a little fruit and milk here and there, in the case of necessity. They threw up their hands in speechless intimidation that the road was simply paved with refreshment peddlers. We were impatient to get away now, and the rest of our two-hour stop rather dragged, but finally the set time arrived and we began the ascent. Indeed, it was a wonderful road, smooth, compact, clean, and the side next to the precipice was guarded all along by dressed stone posts about three feet high and placed at short distances apart. The road could not have been better built if Napoleon I had built it. He seems to have been the introducer of the sort of roads which Europe now uses. All literature which describes life as it existed in England, France, and Germany up to the close of the last century is filled with pictures of coaches and carriages wallowing through these three countries in mud and slush, half-wheeled deep. But after Napoleon had floundered through a conquered kingdom, he generally arranged things so that the rest of the world could follow dry shot. We went on climbing higher and higher and curving hither and thither in the shade of the noble woods, and with a rich variety of profusion of wildflowers all about us, and glimpses of rounded grassy backbones below us, occupied by trim chalets and nibbling sheep, and other glimpses of far lower altitudes, where distance diminished the chalets to toys and obliterated the sheep altogether. And every now and then, some ermined monarch of the Alps swung magnificently into view for a moment, and then drifted past an intervening spur, and disappeared again. It was an intoxicating trip altogether. The exceeding sense of satisfaction that follows a good dinner added largely to the enjoyment. 
the having something special to look forward to and amuse about, like the approaching grandeur of Merrigan, sharpened the zest. Smoking was never so good before. Solid comfort was never solider. And we lay back against the thick cushions, silent, meditative, and steeped in felicity. I rubbed my eyes, opened them, and started. I'd been dreaming I was at sea, and it was a thrilling surprise to wake up and find land all around me. It took me a couple of seconds to come to, as you may say, and then I took in the situation. The horses were drinking at a trough in the edge of town. The driver was taking beer. Harris was snoring beside me. The courier, with folded arms and bowed head, was sleeping on the box. Two dozen barefooted and bareheaded children were gathered around the carriage with their hands crossed behind, gazing up with serious and innocent admiration at the dozing tourists baking there in the sun. Several small girls held night-capped babies, nearly as big as themselves in their arms, and even these fat babies seemed to take a sort of sluggish interest in us. We had slept an hour and a half and missed all of the scenery. I did not need anybody to tell me that. If I had been a girl, I would have cursed for vexation. As it was, I woke up the Asian and gave him a piece of my mind. Instead of being humiliated, he only upbraided me for being so wanting in vigilance. He said he had expected to improve his mind by coming to Europe, but a man might travel to the ends of the earth with me and never see anything, for I was manifestly endowed with the very genius of ill luck. He even tried to get up some emotion about that poor courier who never got a chance to see anything on account of my heedlessness. But when I thought I had borne about enough of this kind of talk, I threatened to make Harris tramp back to the summit and make a report on that scenery, and this suggestion spiked his battery. We drove sullenly through Brint's to the seductions of its bewildering array of Swiss carvings and the clamorous hoo-hooing of its cuckoo clocks and had not entirely recovered our spirits when we rattled across a bridge over the rushing Blue River and entered the pretty town of Interlaken. It was just about sunset, and we had made the trip from Lucerne in ten hours. <laughs> ¶¶